0: Hi, this is Li Chen Ren, director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast series, where we navigate China, India, Japan, and the broad emerging markets with members of Wisdom Tree and other industry leaders. Hi, this is June 1st, 2022. Uh, we have Victor Shi, an expert on the politics of China, and he is the uh, author of two books published uh, factions and financing in China, Elite Conflict and Inflation, and Coalitions of the Week, Elite Politics in China from Mao's Stratagem to the Rise of Xi. And we also have Ding Ding Chen. He is a professor of international relations at Jinan University, Guangzhou, China, and non-resident fellow at Global Public Policy, Berlin, Germany. He is also the founding director of uh, Interlissia Institute, uh, independent think tank focusing on international affairs in China. Uh, We are talking about China politics today, which is timely because um, technically uh, this year, or maybe I'm a novice of politics, uh, this year is similar to US presidential election, except uh, all politics. Uh, is um, you know played behind the doors. Of course, you know a lot of information got spilled into the public. That's why uh, we want to get the insights from uh, Victor and Dingding, because Ding, who's been um, you know observing uh, Chinese politics for a long time. So Victor, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the book.
1: Uh, yeah. First of all, thank you, uh, Li Qian, for inviting me to speak on your podcast. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, as you know, I dabbled in the financial industry myself, so, I, so I, I love to listen to financial sector podcasts, and yours is an excellent one, of course. Um, so I am currently a professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, we have a very well-endowed China Studies Center, the 21st Century uh, China Center, and I'm a member of that center, and we do a lot of um quantitative research related to China, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, you know, runs the gamut between elite politics, which is what I do, all the way to social media analysis. Uh, my colleague Molly Roberts is a world-leading expert in scraping and analyzing uh, Weibo data. Um, yeah, so, so re- we're really into uh, China studies.
0: So tell us what motivated you to write this book, The Coalitions of the Week.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm happy to do it. so. And uh, now people are like, oh, you know, Victor, you timed this book for the 20th Party Congress. How dare you? But I actually started writing this uh, 12 years ago, back in 2010. And of course, I couldn't have anticipated all the things that had happened in China. You know, 12 years later, I started writing it because I I was collecting a lot of uh, elite biographical data uh, for another project of mine, which has been published. Um, you know, uh, in the past 10 years. And what I found was this very curious thing. So um, PLA officers who were labeled as counter-revolutionary splitters, 反革命分裂者, uh, because they split the Central Committee during the 1930s, they were systematically promoted and protected during the Cultural Revolution. And as you know, a main objective of the Cultural Revolution is to eradicate counter-revolutionaries from the Chinese Communist Party Yet these officers were systematically protected by Chairman Mao. So I started digging into why that was the case. And it turns out that this was uh, as Mao thought about his rule for life. Right. So, you know, as we all know, it turns out Mao became a dictator for life. He was the leader of China until he died. Uh, The main strategy that he ended up with, it was not the strategy that he started with. He started with a sort of normal factional strategy, you know, just Uh, promoting people who had worked with him in the past, like Lin Biao and so on and so forth. But by the end of his life, he had to purge even people who were his longtime friends, like Lin Biao, and promote people who were very weak. By weak, I mean either politically very vulnerable, like these officers who were counter-revolutionaries, or very junior officials who didn't know what was going on in Beijing, in Zhongnanhai, like uh, people like Wang Hongwen is the classic example. He was an ordinary worker who suddenly found himself to be the vice chairman of the Chinese Communist Party in five years time. Uh, So this coalition of the weak as turns out is what allowed Chairman Mao to rule for life because, you know, of course, Mao was a human being like all of us, he got sick. Um, He increasingly could not function. And if you had these powerful figures who were also in the elite, They would have seized power from him, but he didn't need to worry about that because everyone who was higher up in the Chinese government was extremely weak. And so uh, they did not dare to challenge his power through the end of his life. And so the interesting thing, of course, is that is the same pattern going to happen in the Xi Jinping period? And of course, I'm happy to talk about that. We don't know. We don't know. Well, uh, um, I, we are not seeing that yet. We're seeing a little bit of this, you know, we can talk about Wang Huning a little bit. This is a, uh, maybe I shouldn't talk about Wang Huning. <laughs> he sees, in a sense, uh, Ding Ding's ultimate boss, you know, in the whole, uh, right, like the think tank world. He's the ultimate think tanker. Um, you know, so Wang Huning uh, is not, has never been in charge of a major political uh, administrative unit, like a province or ministry he ended up in the Politburo Standing Committee, a, a kind of a similar profile as these kind of writers who were, who acquired enormous power during the Cultural Revolution, like Yao Wenyuan and, and Zhang Chunqiao. Um, So at least in terms of political connections, you know, obviously not, not other things they did. Uh, But that's only a small part of Xi Jinping's coalition. We will have to see at the twentieth and the, even the twenty-first Party Congress. I mean, remember this is. Only the first 10 years over, there could be another, uh, certainly another 10 more years of Xi Jinping, if not another 20, 30 years. So as we progress into the other uh, party congresses, we could see a kind of a coalition of the week.
0: Wow, that's you know, very timely, particularly, I think uh, right now, I think to get, you know, our listener uh, interest up, let's just say, I think in the U.S. there's still speculation, you know, recently says, will she get his, you know, uh, another five years, you know, forget about uh, 10 years. But I think uh, among you and uh, Ding Ding, among the group of people who've been looking at the Chinese politics, you guys were very much uh, you know, in this in this in the camp that you know, she's she's power is very secure. Um, so, Dinding, what do you? What's your point of view? Hi, Dinding. Ding.
2: Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm still in the car. Okay, thank you. Uh, and uh, I think Victor's book will be very very interesting book uh, for us uh, within China to read. I think from a theoretical point of view, uh, although I haven't read the book, but just by listening to Victor. I think uh, he has laid out a very uh, strong theory of how leaders choose to balance uh, different, uh, you know, uh, factions or sections, and when uh, they are in position to make sure the uh, stability and uh, long-term uh, survival of the regime can uh, continue. So I think, uh, but I look forward to reading the, the details of the book. Um, but in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, the Mao period and, uh, and and after that, I think uh, it's uh, it's maybe uh, not so China particular in in a sense. So if we are talking about you know China being the unique uh, case, uh, I think that's one perspective. But on the other hand, I think uh, even from uh, ancient you know the uh, times, you know all the emperors would uh, uh, try very, very uh, carefully to balance right? different sections. And different, you know, uh, uh, sons and, and the daughters of the emperors. For example, if you look at Kangxi, Kanshi, you know, even uh, ordered to ex- execute his oldest son, right, the太子, uh, just to make sure that uh, you know other uh, younger uh, sons uh, like Yongzheng uh, eventually could uh, take uh, take over. So I think you know, if you look at uh, the Chinese history from a long-term perspective. Uh, that this kind of a balancing behavior might not be uh, so unique but I, I don't know the details so we have to go back to look at that um, but for now I think uh, everything remains to see you know uh, you know you, um, Chinese politics can be quite unpredictable uh, just look at you know 10 years ago who would have predicted that right so I, I think we should be a little bit more cautious you know but doesn't mean anything could it happen. But still, I think we need to be a little bit more cautious.
0: Okay. So in uh, Victor, uh, you know, your previous book is also about, you know, elite uh, politics. How is the first book, uh, you know, kind of connected to your second book?
1: Uh, yeah, so as it turns out, there is some connections, um, although not especially strong. So in the first book, what I ordered, uh, what I argued was that there are two kinds of officials in the Chinese government. You have uh, very narrow technocrats who control particular bureaucracies. And I really focus on the financial bureaucrats, uh, you know, including the, the top ones were Chen Yun and Zhu Wunji, um, who only control sort of the you know, uh, fiscal and financial and uh, economic planning departments within the state council, uh, they have a particular set of policy preferences in uh, which emphasize central control over tax revenue and over monetary policy. Uh, The other kinds of officials, which is a lot more numerous within the Chinese government are uh, generalists who are you know their careers mainly in the provinces but then at a certain point they get promoted into the state council and the party center Uh, they have a lot of followers in the provinces and so they prefer kind of more expansionary uh, monetary policy Um, and some of the very narrow technocrats is kind of today's coalition of the week right so you think about someone like Yi Gang right so Yi Gang uh a career technocrat spent a very long time in the United States, which means that he cannot possibly rise up to the Politburo level or even above that, Um, that actually could be a good thing for him uh, because he's not threatening. To the dictator. So so some of these technocrats are being used, um others are not, but you know, you do have people like gang and you know others <laughs> whose name I won't name, uh, you know, uh, because yeah. they they are still hoping for that full ministerial level promotion uh but but um yeah, so you you do have some technocrats, but you don't have I mean one thing that I think that's kind of um not good about what's currently happening is that you don't have a politically strong technocrat anymore. The way that Zhou Xiaotuan or you know Chen Yun were politically very connected, uh, Zhou Xiaotuan because he uh, is a princeling uh, and whose father was the boss of Jiang Zemin. So uh, he could push for reform. He could push for unpopular monetary policy. That was fine. These days, I think it's just whatever the party center orders is what the technocrats will carry out, and and as we can see, some of these policies are not so great.
0: Thank you. Um, uh, for our listeners, I want to give a little bit of background. Uh, Yi Gang, uh, that uh, Victor just mentioned, he is a governor of a uh, People's Bank of China, so it's almost like uh the equivalent for the U.S. will be a uh, power. You know, the Federal Reserve Chairman. So it's it's a very powerful monetary policy a position, and which were uh, the you know Zhou Xiaochuan, the the ones that uh, v- Victor mentioned was the technocrat with political power. uh, uh you you know Yi Gang actually um, have some. Um, he, he was a professor at Indiana University, Indianapolis, where I also went to uh, for, for my master's degree. So I was uh, quite uh, familiar with, he, uh, with him and, and his work. Um, that point is really interesting in the sense that you mentioned um, in China, some of the technocrats, uh, in the older days, also have political power, but the, those political powers mainly through uh, connections to the so-called the princelings, um, who in the U.S. equivalent will be, uh, I would say, dynasties like you know Bush dynasties or or Kennedy dynasties. Can you give us a little bit uh, of the background of that part of the Chinese politics, and also in the current uh situation it doesn't at least from layman's point of view I feel there's not many princel you know princeling powerful princelings anymore or or maybe I was wrong.
1: Yeah no there aren't as many in politics these days. So the, the princelings um actually so I go into this in my book in the new book uh because I have a chapter on the princelings. Uh, it was kind of a historical accident that led to a large crop of princelings uh, coming into age in the 1960s and the 1970s. Basically, at the end of the Long March in 1935, uh, there were no women in the Chinese Communist Party. So the people who went on the Long March was 99 percent men. They, many of them left their wives behind and so on and so forth. So terrible tragedies. Uh, only the top few leaders like Mao and Zhu De could bring the wives with them. So when they got to Yan'an, uh, and then a year later, as you know, they opened up the anti-Japan university, then all these women from the cities started going to Yan'an. And so these, uh, you know, bear branches, we call them, we call them in Chinese, uh, started marrying these women who were 15, 20 years younger than them, Uh, And there was a huge baby boom among the elite of the party starting the early 1940s that went uh, all the way through much of the 1950s. And Xi Jinping, of course, was born of such a couple. You know, his father was this veteran revolutionary who joined the party in the 1920s, uh, whereas his mother was a young intellectual from the city who joined the communist movement in, in the 1930s. So these these, uh, people were born in the kind of late 40s to the 50s, they became, um, well, so they didn't go get a lot of education during the Cultural Revolution because many of them, you know, uh, reached college age in 1966. Uh, But nonetheless, many of them very quickly got their education they needed in the late 70s, early 80s. And they quickly began to serve in the Chinese government What's interesting is that although in the beginning of the 80s, many princelings served in the Chinese government, by the end of the 1980s, many of them had left because of two reasons. One is that there were these even more lucrative opportunities from their perspective, uh, these new kinds of state investment companies like uh, CITIC Group were formed. And so some of the princelings are like, well, I've got connections. There's now these new kinds of companies are investing in Hong Kong and in other places. Looks like a fun life. So many of them joined that world uh, and never looked back. And you know, I'm sure you know some of these people. Uh, and, and some of them were kind of forced out of politics or forced to delay their careers because other people in the party did not like princelings. Um, so Chen Yun's son, Chen Yuan, faced this uh, resistance. So he was going to become the vice secretary of Beijing in 1988. But the Beijing party committee basically said, no, we we don't want you. Uh, And so that was a huge rebuke uh, against Chen Yun. You know, Chen Yun was very powerful official back then. Uh, So there were many princelings like that whose careers were stymied. A few clever princelings left Beijing. They're like, well, you know, this game in Beijing is too difficult. I'm going to go to Liaoning province or I'm going to go to a rural county in Hebei province next to Beijing, like Xi Jinping did. And those were the survivors in this very heated political competition, which included Xi Jinping. Uh, and so this is why we don't see so many princings anymore because many of them were eliminated. The few who survived, um, you know, like Xi Jinping, they did very, very well. Uh, Liu Yandong is another person who did well. Bo Xilai was doing very well until you know, uh, he made a mistake and you know, he was purged from the party. Um, but these days you still have a few people like Zhang Yuxia who's you know, uh, the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, a longtime friend of Xi Jinping. You have potentially have some younger princeling like Deng Xiaoping's grandson is still in the mix. Hu Jintao's son is still uh, serving in government somewhere. So some of those people could rise up, but you're right. Um, most of the sort of children and grandchildren of the original revolutionaries, they do private equity now. So uh, the, the private equity industry in China is built with these people.
0: That's right. Uh, <laughs> actually, very um, the private equity. One one of the days uh, I should I should do I I will do a, a episode indeed. Uh, you know it is uh, uh, stuffed with uh, you know the. The children of the elites uh, in, in a lot of private equity shops um I want to follow up a, a little bit so sometimes when people look at China politics it's hard to understand because it's everything is played behind the doors like what's the principle like is it uh, what's a good way to look at it is it like the politics is based on fractions and then they compete? Um, or is it how does, for example, in the US money plays a huge role? Uh, well, in China, you can, I guess you cannot just openly spend money and lobbying for yourself. But what, what's the equivalent of, of that in Chinese politics? Like, can you help help us, you know, understand a little bit the how China's politics is played?
1: Uh, well, I, you know, I'm sure you and Ding Ding both have some very good intuition. Uh, so I, I have a lot of scholarship on factions. Um, so, so I think because um, Chinese politics is a very high risk game uh, in the sense that if you lose, you could go to jail, you can be killed like, you know, Lin Biao was, well, Lin Biao's plane crash. Uh, so, so then uh, top politicians, they cultivate very loyal followers who will not betray them, at least not without incurring significant significant costs. Uh, and that's sort of the organizing principles of uh, Chinese politics at the elite level. Uh, so you, you basically, and the way that we study this is, we can look at uh, where people have worked with senior leaders in the past, and we can uh, identify people in, in a certain faction. And of course, we also run a lot of regressions to prove that you know, if you've worked with Xi Jinping in the past, that your chance of promotion is indeed higher, uh, and the results are pretty consistent. So if, if you have worked with Xi Jinping in the past in Zhejiang or in Fujian, your chance of getting promoted is a lot higher, your chance of being removed is a lot lower than your colleagues. So through this kind of statistical testing, we are able to show at least some of this uh, behind the scenes politics, But the full story is, of course, a lot more complicated, right? Because not every person who's worked with Xi Jinping will benefit equally. Some benefit very disproportionately, even if they've only worked very briefly with Xi Jinping, like Ding shui You know, they overlapped in Shanghai by one year. And suddenly Ding shui you know, is his personal secretary. What did he do for Xi Jinping to gain his trust? We don't know that. Right, we don't know yeah. that, uh, but it must be something.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of opaque, and you mentioned the Zhejiang. Uh, I happen to, you know, grew up in Zhejiang, and Zhejiang is a, a very uh, a connected province. Like everybody, even though it's a you know province of millions of people, but uh, the there's, the connection is very strong because every little town has its own dialect, so people know each other uh, very well. Um, a couple of times I've been able to get, you know, a pass just mentioning I'm from Zhejiang. <laughs> um, and, and indeed, some of the officials from Zhejiang who got promoted, when they did something wrong, uh, they were not punished uh, as as severely as as one would think. So I think uh, that that was also uh, implicit uh, kind of uh, understanding that these connections really help uh, by being close to the leader. Um, so, Ding, Ding what what about you know from your point of view? Like how when we look at Chinese politics, how how should we look at it? Okay,
2: thanks, Victor. Ah, uh, well. You know, I don't work on uh, Chinese politics, so I think Victor has more <laughs> knowledge than me. I have some observations by being uh, within China on the ground, uh, but, you know, two points. First of all, I think uh, like every other country, there are institutions, there are rules, you know, the rules of the game. It, uh, politics, is not a random game uh, to say, I mean, even North Korea, right, a close country from outside. But I don't think North Korea is like a randomly uh, operated, you know, a country from the top. You know, they have their own institutions, even though they might not be so uh, clear to us as outsiders. They might not be transparent as as some other countries. But it's two different things, right? They can be close, but they still have very strict uh, norms, institutions, and the rules of the game. So people tend to sometimes confuse the two. Just because it's closed, it doesn't mean uh, they don't have rules, right? It's like, a, you know, like ancient court system. They have very clear rules. Uh, how to study that? It's a different issue, right? Maybe it's difficult because of lack of access, lack of information, and all that. Uh, my the other uh, point, intuition is uh, actually, uh, uh, in China, it's getting more and more institutionalized in terms of. Let me just give you one example in terms of. Uh, age, you know, age of the leadership, right? Uh, you know, that's very important when you look at, of course, Victor has done some excellent work on this before. When you look at the provincial level, you have to be, you know, below a certain age. When you look at, uh, you know, the, the city level, you have to be uh, like at a certain age. So I'm sure Victor can tell us, you know, if, you know, Victor, it would be very nice for you to come up with a model for China Chinese, you know, lower level officials, you know, like by what age you have to reach some certain level before you can go, you know, further up, because otherwise you would be cut off uh, at a certain age, At uh, most times, not not everybody, of course. So I think that that's a very uh, clear uh, norm that I actually observe, uh, you know, every day here, you know, if you reach, you know, 60, by the time you are not, you know, like a foreign minister level, then you are basically, you are... You'll be retired, right? So when you are, you know, fifty, you don't reach a, uh, you know, four director level, and then mostly, you know, you'll you'll be retired. So I think those kind of institutions are very very interesting uh, to to observe.
0: Do you feel, Victor, that that yeah. part of the institution is actually going to be challenged a little bit because you know? uh President she getting a fifth turn uh a third well, turn well, uh, I mean, is...
1: he, yeah he's the exception um I, I think by and large I agree with Ding Ding you know the age rules at the different levels are held unless your connections are extremely strong Um, so we've seen some exception I mean, even like Li Zhanshu right so Li Zhanshu by the time he got into the Politburo, he was above the age of 65, which means that he was in a full ministerial level uh, above 65. Uh, but nonetheless, I guess there was a lot of anticipation. It was like, oh, but he's going to get into Politburo, so it really doesn't matter if he goes above the age of 65. Um, another exception is, you know, uh, I'm from Hong Kong, you know, sort of our big boss now, Xia Long. Uh, he has a full ministerial level position, but he's, you know, I mean, the guy is like 68. So he's no longer in the central committee, but, you know, uh, he you still know, got
0: that job. Yeah, he has that,
1: you know, uh, portfolio, the Hong Kong Macau portfolio. So, the, so that's an exception. Um, I, I actually think, you know, I, I guess I slightly disagree with Ding Ding is in the sense that over time, this kind of age norms will be eroded for two reasons. One is that uh, China is aging. A lot of these age age rules just don't make sense anymore because you have an aging population. You have some very talented people in their 50s and 60s, uh, especially the women um, who are forced usually to retire even earlier than the male colleagues. Why do that, right? So all this human capital goes to waste. Uh, Why not just delay people's retirement? The other thing is that I, I've observed that Xi Jinping, at least for now, uh, likes to work with people that he knows well. So we have seen people like Li Zhangshu, uh, who you know who is going to retire most likely at 20th Party Congress, but nonetheless at a pretty advanced age, you know, 73, 74, something like that. Um, and then Xia you know, still being in a, a very powerful office. So there could be more people like that who, even though they have exited from the Politburo or from the Central Committee, they continue to serve in powerful positions. Uh, so I think that's possible uh, going into the future.
0: So from this point of view, um, if you, I know it's impossible to make predictions, but what what do you think the you know kind of the the median case forecast for for this party, uh, Congress, which is really China's uh, presidential election?
1: Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll I'll divide it into different levels. So as you know, there's different levels. So at the top level, Xi Jinping, there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to serve for another five years. And again, you know, I predict he's going to serve for another, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> you know, whatever the natural, you know, and I think medical science is advancing very fast uh, in China. So, you know, who knows? Like, It could be a very good long time. Uh, at the Politburo Standing Committee level, uh, Li Zhang Shu and Han Zheng should retire because they are above the age of 67. Uh, so the informal norm is that at that level, at the Politburo and Politburo Standing Committee level, if you're 67, you can stay for five more years. If you're 68, then you have to retire. Uh, so they're they're above 67, so they have to retire. Um, so I think that that will happen. Replacing them, I think, will be Ding Shusheng. And before Shanghai, I don't know if you want to talk about Shanghai. Yes, please. Uh, I I had thought Li Chang would be a good candidate to replace uh, Han Zheng because you know Han Zheng also previously was the mayor of Shanghai or party secretary of Shanghai, and then became vice premier. Now I'm not so sure. I think um, actually Li Xi is sending some very strong vibe that he would like that job also of uh, Vice Premier in the Politburo Standing Committee. So who is we'll who is
0: who is that? Oh, is- Li
1: Xi is the Party Secretary of Guangdong Province, which is the other economic powerhouse in China, of course.
0: So in terms of China, like if you think about these factions, like what are the major factions? Like when you mentioned the Guangdong, you know, province, like, is he part of some factions?
1: Oh, yeah. So the, all the replacement to Han Zheng and uh, Li Zhangshu, they're all Xi Jinping's faction members. Uh, there are still, I would say, two other factions besides Xi's faction, uh, and those are the Shanghai gang. So the kind of Jiang Zemin, people who were promoted by Jiang Zemin um, in the Shanghai bureaucracy. Uh, The the last powerful figure in that faction is Han Zhong, and he's due for retirement. The other uh, faction is the Youth League, the so-called Youth League faction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, Li Keqiang and even some would say even Wang Yang are in that faction. They are expected to stay in the Politburo Standing Committee because they are only 67 years old. Uh, but if, you know, I think if she wants to completely dominate the Politburo Standing mm-hmm. Committee, he can force them to retire and replace them with people from his faction. I think that's not a very smart move uh, because, you know, wh- one of the great things of this arrangement in the past five years is that when things go very wrong, which we've seen, um, you know, recently uh, Xi Jinping can blame it on someone else. You know, because in 2020, Li Keqiang was in charge of COVID. Uh, Today, even still, Sun Chunlan plays a big role in Sun Chunlan in the Politburo. She's not a part of Xi Jinping's faction. So if things were to get out of control, he can always blame these people. Uh, But if he replaces them with his own people, then he would have to blame his own people, which is not a not yeah. a very
0: good situation uh, for our listeners. Us, uh, I I know we're talking a lot of names. Essentially, the other faction, uh Shanghai Gang, was related to a previous president, uh, Jiang Zemin, and I would say the Youth League faction. You know, the current prime minister, uh, um, Li Keqiang, and the previous president, Hu Jintao, they are of that faction. Uh, which uh leads to another interesting you know speculation who which faction is likely to be able to have a prime you know who's going to be the premier uh since the current one is going to retire so any any speculation i know it's, it's so hard to read but what what's the a general what's the general you know gossip now
1: yeah there's it's a three three way uh race right now um between Wang Yang, that's my favorite. Um, I, you know, I think he's a good official personally, uh, and and also he's got the right experience. He was both Guangdong Party Secretary and also Vice Premier. Uh, the second candidate is Hu Chunhua, who is favored by uh, Hu Jintao and also Li Keqiang. So he's from the Youth League. He's currently the Vice Premier of China, uh, but kind of low profile, in charge of agriculture and uh, foreign trade. The third person, uh, I would have said Li Chang, uh, the party sector of Shanghai. But now that uh, he doesn't have the best reputation in China, uh, let's say, um, maybe it won't be him, uh, but who knows, right? So I, I think- Yeah. I, Actually, I,
0: yeah. this is really interesting. Um, I want to bring a little bit of background. It seems, you know, for us, it's common knowledge, but uh, for for, you know, obviously last two months, Shanghai was through a pretty difficult uh lockdown, there were a lot of uh unsatisfaction and Li Chang happened to be Shanghai's party secretary now you know there's all kinds of rumors uh he was a very strong candidate uh before Shanghai this wave because Shanghai was doing really well uh you know without doing any largest scale lockdown or testing. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it it got you know Omicron w- was just such a difficult. Uh, unless you have a uh, have a you know significant uh, widespread testing plus quarantine, uh, it's very hard to get uh, Omicron uh, under a targeted system. So I think uh, Li Qiang uh, being the party section, that actually gives uh, some of the questions. Obviously, he is very loyal, you know, to the president. But in China, is loyalty, you know, the only thing matters or you also need to really be very kind of capable, you know, getting things done. So I will say, you know, what's uh, like how important between loyalty and ability to get, get things done? You know, is it, you know, 80-20 or 60-40? You know, what, what's the impression of how important these two characteristics are?
1: oh let's have ding ding chime in ding <laughs> ding what do you think ding ding i i i remember
2: a long time ago did you write a paper on this topic i think with uh, uh, professor liu min from Beidar.
1: yeah yeah or, faction uh, yeah that was the faction paper yeah the original
2: or paper. promotion i think some, yeah. some people have written uh, on this topic including economists so I think uh, I obviously I don't have an answer but my, my understanding my impression is that it depends right it, it, you know I think as uh, for social scientists you know the biggest mistake is to apply you know one size shoes to every situation right that's the biggest mistake. So even in this case I think it, it depends if you're a village head right Now obviously if you work hard you're smart enough then you'll be promoted. If you're a county head, you work hard smart enough, and you need to have the you know, good opportunities to to shine. Then you get promoted, and for you know level above, then you need to you know something else. So I think it, it all depends. You cannot say you know it's just the eighty percent of um, capability, then twenty percent of uh, connection or luck or whatever, right? And that doesn't seem to be the right uh, formula. So uh, so I think the the cautious. Thing here is not to draw a big conclusion and then to apply it to everybody and then apply it to every situation. That would be, in my view, a mistake to understand Chinese politics. Uh, but of course, you know, the other side is: do we have any sort of uh, uh, regularities there? I think um, uh, my 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 hunch, my intuition is: we still need need uh, to have capable, uh, you know, cadres. That, that's for sure, and even for uh, Omicron and, and COVID, you know, for whatever reasons, understandable. Shanghai has been the center of focus for for the whole world, right, because of Shanghai's economic uh, position, weight, the number of experts in Shanghai, and but other parts of China, you know, uh, don't really get that kind of attention. Including even even Guangdong, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. That Guangdong,
2: we... you know, Shenzhen and Guangzhou has done relatively well. I think, uh, uh in terms of uh, you know, uh, containing the Omicron. Yeah. And so far, okay, nobody knows in the future, but so far,
0: <laughs> no, so, so far, yeah, so, it's definitely.
2: So it's it's the regional variation. I think a lot of the China experts would love to discuss. It you know, is so huge, so complex. So, but then again, if it's too complicated, people lose patience, right? It's like, yeah, okay, it's too complicated. I don't understand. I give up. So,
0: I hard. I think I think in the end, to be able to get things done is definitely an important factor because, ah, uh, if you look at in, indeed, you know, in social media, because like Twitter or US social media, the people on US social media, a lot of them are in Shanghai and Beijing. But rather compared to that, you know, much less for people from Shenzhen and uh, Guangzhou, which has done extremely well. Uh, if if we, you know, Shenzhen was able to um, make a very quick decision and then got you know a seven day lockdown, which in effective is more like five day lockdown, uh, and you know even in day to uh, day day to uh, day COVID situation. I have friends who live in Shenzhen and in Guangzhou, their experience was just so significantly better um, than Beijing and Shanghai. But, But I think people in China, do know that. Like you, you if you uh, you know, look at if you observe the WeChat, uh, a lot of the WeChat, you know, private chats, people very much uh, you know, believe, you know, Shenzhen and Guangzhou has done a very good job, you know, better jobs than Shanghai and Beijing. And and the other city, of course, uh, is Hanzhou, where I, you know, I have lots of family and friends there. Um, they've been so close to Shanghai, yet they've been able to uh Get you know the situation under control in a very low key way. You know they don't, they don't you know kind of uh, show off the, how well they do. But, um, but I think in China people people do know. But outside China, the you know attention is so focused on just Beijing and Shanghai. But, you know, in particular, with so many expats uh, who live in who live in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, so Ding, Ding um, what's keeping you busy nowadays?
2: Well, uh, regular things like teaching, researching, and a uh, uh, little bit of a run in the sink tank, you know. These days we hold a lot of uh, virtual meetings, discussions, of course, because of COVID. But other than that, uh, it's uh, uh, it's an interesting time to observe uh, global politics, of course,
1: uh, mostly my job. <laughs>
0: um, so just- can, can I ask something. you a
1: question? A very yes. uh, kind of a controversial sure. question, Ding Ding. So, we had a nice conversation with some of our colleagues at fudan university about you know us china relationship and we we asked them like well what do you think of biden saying that you know the us and china are in competition it doesn't mean we're enemies we're just in competition but then they were like well you know in a competition in the end there's a winner and there's a loser so that means that you know there is kind of a zero-sum relationship between the us and china uh, what's your take on on this kind of argument
2: you mean whether uh, competition will competition have
1: competition means like a friend enemy type relationship or do, can you have like kind of friend friendly competition in a sense
2: uh of course if you look at the olympics right olympics is all about how to uh, be stronger yourself not necessarily uh, all the performing your uh, component, uh, I mean opponents, right? It's all about how to make yourself stronger, faster, and higher in, in, in that spirit. So I think even it comes to the the extreme form of competition like the Olympics, it's not just about defeating your opponent. It's really about how to make yourself strong. This is actually consistent with uh, Biden's uh, and, and all the... Ah, uh, current uh, senior officials from the u s. government, their messages, right? The first is always about the u s. domestic politics, how to invest domestically, how to renew uh, domestic energy, and all that because without this, uh, you you're not able to compete effectively right with outsiders. so it's the focus is always domestic uh, the top priority. So I think uh, I, my understanding is competition has been these days interpreted uh, over interpreted as uh, uh, as a confrontation, I think confrontation would have uh, winners and the losers. And not necessarily competition. Competition is can be benign. It can be a benign form of competition, and the clear rules for competition, right? It's not like a confrontation where you can use all means possible, all means necessary to destroy your opponents. For competition, you have to follow the rules. If you follow, you will be uh, expelled, right? So look at the Olympics. So I think very important for for not just the U.S. China, but for all countries involved, to you know, be clear about what common rules uh, we should uh, you know set up, we should uh, follow, we should establish, and so on and so forth.
0: Uh, Ding, Ding, of obviously, um, I think a U.S. Uh, competition, um, invest in competition. That's two of the themes of Secretary Blinken's uh, China speech uh, just last week. So you've you know, researched a lot on tech competition and sanctions. Uh, Tell us what you find and also, you know, what do you think might happen going forward uh, in terms of the U.S.-China tech competition?
2: It is, uh, in a way, an ironic uh, picture, I I think, for, uh, you know, for U.S. and for China and for for other uh, you know, parties involved in this. In in a way, like I said, I think everybody would agree competition uh, is always there, right? It's always part of the game, right? It cannot be always harmony and all that. There always competition, even confrontation. Unfortunately, look at Ukraine, Russia now. So competition, I think, is there and will continue to be there. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of people tend to ignore the cooperation element. It's still very much alive. Even in U.S.-China economic relationship, and even U.S.-China technology relationship, right? Last year, if people remember, uh, if they pay attention, the trade volume between U.S. and China actually broke new record, right? It's over uh, six hundred billion U.S. dollars. It broke the record, and uh, I think even in tech comp- uh you know, competition or cooperation. I think uh, Secretary Blinken mentioned, you know, eighty percent of the Chinese. A graduate student or student studying uh, STEM, right, studying STEM items, they uh, chose to stay in the U.S. Uh, in a way, I, I see that as a corporation because they bring in knowledge from uh, both China and the U.S. They, they have learned, they have accumulated to contribute to the U.S. companies, U.S. economy, and of course, global economy, and part of that is China, uh, China's economy. So I do not necessarily see that as a hundred percent the competition. And even today, I mean, the U.S. semiconductor is still selling chips to Chinese companies, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them. I don't know the exact number last year, but it's uh, you know hundreds of billions of U.S. dollars. So that's cooperation in another way. So a lot of the media, of course, for understandable reasons, focus on the competition element. But I think that's not the uh, full picture, and we are. You know, in this globalisation world, uh, whether you like it or not, we cannot go back to uh, the pre-globalisation. I mean, pre-1980, the Cold War kind of a period. That's maybe the the strongest reason. The strongest tie actually can bring U.S. and China together. Otherwise, we'll be seeing a much worse situation than we are seeing now.
0: Yeah, but. Do you think that's possible? I think in the US, definitely you feel their sentiment, there's strong sentiment, you know, people in the US, the uh, the sentiment of, you know, decouple from China. Uh, I think uh, some of it, you know, Secretary Blinken's uh, point, po- you know, uh, even in his speech, he, part of the competition is for, you know, for, is China becoming a little bit more self-reliant and U.S. becoming more self-reliant—that is decoupling in some way. So, do you do you feel this risk has increased the decoupling well, risk? Uh,
2: if you ask me, I would say 100% of decoupling is is not possible. It's just not possible. And even 80% of decoupling is not possible, or it's not possible without very high cost. Of course, you can choose to go back to the kind of a cold war period, right? If you really, really desire that, you can choose that. But what are the consequences, right? Inflation, loss of jobs, loss of efficiency and all that. So I think uh, reasonable people, uh, rational policymakers at the end of the day will not choose that. I mean, if you look at Russia, Russia today, we, we have seen all these sanctions on Russia, but countries, even including countries in Europe and in the US are still importing Russian oil, right? It's mm-hmm. not you know complete cut off. It, it's really how to balance uh, the sanctions and, and the you know domestic uh, or foreign or global economic costs. It's always about a balance in the two. You cannot go to the extreme. Of course you can, but it can be very very uh, high costly. But for now, I think it's a, it's not possible for U.S. and China, the two biggest economies in the world, to just decouple like that. It would. Uh, take, uh, I don't know, you know, huge loss of economic, you know, benefits for both countries and not just for both countries, for a lot of countries involved, even India, Japan, Vietnam, because of a global supply chain, right? It's not, you know, we are not like uh, uh, independent, separate entities. So I, yes. I don't think that's possible.
0: Um, In terms of, uh, in my area, you know, one of the uh, Topic of decoupling is listing of Chinese companies uh, in the US. Uh, traditionally, it is a destination that a lot of Chinese companies coveted, you know, Baidu, uh, Baba, they Weibo, you know, China's Trader, they they list in the US. But now there's this law which you know, says China needs to uh to to be able to allow the uh, super auditor to audit the Chinese for the audit, the auditors. Who does the auditing uh, reports for Chinese firms? I know it's a little bit mouthful, and some of the media is not not entirely correct. Um, a lot of media could not uh, differentiate the auditing uh, super auditor status versus the companies. It's actually a companies is not uh, doesn't really have a say here. It's it's really the whether the super auditor. A U.S. super auditor could audit the auditors uh, in China. So right now, the most recent uh, situation is, at least from from you know from the way I am sitting here, is like China is still kind of couldn't allow company like Baidu, um, which is to stay listed because it may consider as national security concerns. Uh, what 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 Victor and I don't know whether you you know researched this and Ding Ding. What, what's your take? What what do you think on this particular well, issue?
1: Well, I, I saw. I mean, in terms of the Chinese tech companies, um, there also were a lot of problematic regulations from the Chinese government. Uh, you know, the cybersecurity. So so I think my perception is that for investors, yeah. The, so the whole U.S. PCAOB thing is really annoying but at the end of the day you know if they want to exit in hong kong and singapore you know those that's still very much feasible but from the chinese side uh, what the cyberspace administration has done uh, a with the cybersecurity review uh, basically made cac into a, a second csrc right so previously you only needed csrc approval but now if you're a tech company, you basically need CAC as well as CSRC approval. CAC is a lot more opaque, a lot less transparent than CSRC is. Um, so I think there's a lot of uncertainty. And then also all the regulatory moves to kill off entire business models, you know, VIP kids, a lot of the tutoring stuff, a lot of the uh, kind of influencer selling. Kind of models and gaming has taken a huge hit. Um, you know, I think a lot of work needs to be done on the U.S. side, and I think there's some movement on that. But on the Chinese side, the Cyber uh, Security Administration also needs to institutionalize, be a lot more transparent, uh, and be more friendly to investors. Frankly, uh, I don't know if you agree with that.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I want to hear, Dindin's point of view first. Dindin, what what do you think? Well, you know, will Baidu delist like these platform companies? The boy is really in China's court right now.
2: <laughs> I, I, I think the boy is in both courtyard. It's not one side action. It's of course action, the reaction. So we have to understand why, you know, the Chinese government is so concerned about that. Of course, why is data security and all data security? And the U.S. is equally, if not more concerned about National security. That's why they didn't allow Huawei, right, to enter the U.S. market and also other global markets. It's all about national security, and I understand that. So China is also concerned about national security. So I understand that. So I think it's uh, it's fair for both of them, for both countries, to take measures to protect their national security. No problem. I think the issue is uh, whether whether they needed to go to the extreme, you know, to you know, to delist the Chinese companies. I mean, some of the companies are not about national security at all, right? They're consumer companies, they are, you know, I, you know, I cannot imagine all of these, you know, Chinese companies are of great national security significance to the US government, right? So you don't need to delist those companies. I think also the, you know, the, I don't understand the, the auditing thing, but I think there can be some sort of a, uh, you know, solution to that problem. It's not a big issue as long as they have the desire. Now is the, the problem of desire.
0: Yeah. Well, the desire right now, because the US law is already law. So the kind of things the SEC can do is limited now. Uh, so, in some way, it's really for China. I think now it seems, unless China comes out and says, you know these platform companies can continue to list uh, um, that you know showing auditing papers will not be necessary national security. Then there's you know very little U.S. can do now because the law has has passed. Uh, you know before it's been. I, passed.
2: I think I think both has a lot to they can do. It's not a very little. They always say there's very little they can do. I don't believe that. <laughs> they have a lot but, they can do. I, I mean, know. But I, what how I'm to saying, do that? I don't know. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is, okay. under the current situation, you know, with this U.S.-China relationship, uh, is there any possibility of getting something done?
2: I'm actually quite optimistic. I don't think you know this uh, potential, a huge economic loss for both capital markets. Uh, is uh, will be acceptable for both countries. I mean, uh, from my you know ignorant view, I mean, what's the big deal, right? let those companies to continue, uh, while at the same time you can balance national security concerns and uh, auditing concerns. There must be a way. It's just you know still bargaining. It's a still bargaining game. It's not the end of day. Let's continue bargaining. See how much we can squeeze out of you know from this deal. Uh, For me, it's a very, very rational game that they're playing right now. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, they'll be able to at least allow some of the companies to stay there and in the meantime, you know, to uh, explore other potential uh, capital markets like maybe Singapore, maybe, I don't know, uh, even Hong Kong. So, uh, But it's getting definitely more complicated.
0: Okay. Uh so Dining, In turn, now we talk so much about you know you China politics but US politics is also you know very important for the US China relationship. Um you really you predicted uh, President Trump win which was at that time you know out, out of consensus. You also predicted uh, President Biden's win uh, in, uh two years ago. Tell us what you're thinking of U.S. politics. Is it too early to say uh, President Biden might be a one-term president?
2: I think it's up to Victor and you, uh, or Victor. <laughs> he has the voting right, right? If he, he votes, and then he could change the outcome. Every vote can yeah. uh, But, you know, we we as outsiders, we can only read the news. We cannot really uh, kind of, uh, you know, go to the deep level and understand the uh, psychologies of the voters, which is most important, right? How they view the government, how they view the president. But uh, Just by looking at the numbers, the poll numbers and everything, uh, President Biden certainly is not in a very good position right now. Let's say if the election is held today, you know, it's likely he will lose, uh, regardless of uh, the opponent, because people are not happy with the uh, incumbent, right, the current president, not doing very good job in terms of... Uh, Economy, COVID, and, and uh, part of a foreign policy. But then again, we're still far away from 2024. Many, many things can happen. So I think uh, if uh, the path to uh, elections can be any sort of a guy, we probably wouldn't know by the summer of 2024. <laughs> and a lot of crazy things can happen. You know, Trump can come back, who knows, uh, even though it's a small possibility, but it's still, he's still there. I mean, it looks, healthier than Biden sometimes, <laughs> right? Yeah, Yeah, he eats, you know, Coke. He has Coke, and I don't know. Yeah, it's a... cheeseburger very Coke,
1: yes. That's he, that's he, the he, path to healthiness.
0: He looks very uh, tanned. <laughs> uh, but I, I have a very stupid question. Last two uh, days, there was some news says, you know, President Biden was saying that when he got elected, he got a phone call from President Xi and telling him, that you know, democracy is not gonna be the future, autocracy is gonna rule. When I read that news, it seems strikes me a little bit odd because usually I think China's politics is extremely conservative. Like it's it's hard to think that President Xi will say something like kind of that blunt when 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 just congratulating you know, President Biden win. But, but it, some but also nobody wants to say you know president biden might be misquoting uh, here but how, how do you how do you kind of uh, look at these kind of things happening Or oh, it's just uh, you know
1: that- uh, well i i can so i i don't think xi jinping called biden just to say that that's not possible i, I agree with you but um you know i i think what might have happened is Biden uh, had a set of talking points, which were pretty hawkish, you know, because he, he doesn't want to start out with saying that, oh, you know, uh, total, you know, US-China policy is going to change completely. We're going to soften our stance. As we've seen, that did not happen, right? So the tariffs are all still there, you know, et cetera, because uh, his team are uh, filled with people who, you know, I, I don't think they're... You know, hostile to China, but but I think they they do all believe that China is the leading competitor, uh, and as Blinken said, even the leading challenge to United States in the world. Um, so this, you know, so as as uh, sort of friendly as the Blinken speech, as some people read it as, but if you read the beginning of the speech, to at the beginning. He actually did say that China was the biggest challenge to the world, not just to the United States, which is a, a pretty kind of a challenge is fine. Yeah. yeah, challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very hawkish, right? Because I can think of other big challenges like global warming, for example. You know, um, so. So I think uh, they gave him talking points, you know, like China can't do this, China can't do that, etc. And maybe Xi Jinping did react in a way that was also not very friendly, you know. Something like that.
0: Yeah, um, Ding, Ding what what do you think? It's just well, I, I
2: agree that certainly cannot be the exact words. Of course, I don't think the uh, our leader will be that rude. You know, on that particular occasion to say something like that. That's against tradition. But I think it's the impression President Biden maybe got from the uh, conversation. You know, the impression. You know, the the unspoken kind of a meaning of uh, uh, another word or other words, right? Mm-hmm. You know, of course, yes. I think, you know. Between person, the she lines. Sounded, right, between the lines, she sounded uh, very confident, and, you know, our system is doing very fine, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Of course, you know, President Biden would get the impression, oh, you looked on our uh, democracy now because, you know, we are maybe not doing something uh, as expected. You know, that kind of... Uh, very broad message. I think it is um, consistent with uh, the last few years as people observe China's uh, internal and external behaviors. Right? They be, they appear more confident. They appear more confident about their own socialist system. I they, think of it, course,
0: it's not democracy. In, in 2020, particularly, China was extremely confident. Uh, probably a little bit overconfident, uh, or, or because COVID was under control right in early uh, in the early months uh but i i think uh, i think the way i think is that indeed uh you know china is is in some way is a challenge for the us um and you know it's really up to the us to to do the right things i mean us is still you know very well uh, positioned to meet the challenge uh, as you know, as long as US continue to do the things that US does well, you know it. Um, so I, I think uh, some of it is like like you said, um, it is also domestic domestic politics, right? Using uh, both China and the US use each other um, to play the domestic politics. You know, every time in China, there's a uh, uh, some kind of a in you know domestic uh situation, unfriendly situation, they will take US out and say, you know, how, how bad US is doing to divert the attention. So
2: so I think, um, I, think is, I think the situation is both countries are extremely self-confident. I think China is self-confident. <laughs> the US, of course, has been self self-confident, self-confident for, I don't know, 200 years, right? So it's not going to lose that confidence. So it's first time you have these two very extremely self-confident players uh you know handling this very complex relationship uh, whatever you call it right challenge competition it doesn't matter because both understand you know both you know look very extremely uh, confident uh, with themselves mm-hmm. I think that's the situation
0: oh okay, that's now. a great way that that's a that's a great way um obviously right now China's economy uh is not doing as well uh do you Do you feel there might be some shift in in terms of, uh, you know, self-reflection?
2: No, like I said, you know, the Chinese things, we are doing extremely well (laughs) in terms of economy. Why not? We are still growing at 5%, right, regardless of the, you know, the the, the number uh, debatable or not, right? You, You can imagine if Japan is growing at like 5%, how confident would Japan become?
0: <laughs> okay, right? well, so, we'll see this year. I, I uh, on the economy side, I think uh, if China's lucky, indeed, you know, 4.5% 4, 4. is still achievable. Um, so in, in some way, you're right. I think going forward, both countries will be still no, my, very confident. My,
2: my larger point is this, even if China grows at 2%, to 3%, they will be still extremely confident. <laughs> right? Why not? Because you are already the second largest economy in the world. And how are, how many other economies grow at 2 or 3%, not Japan, not some of the, no, uh, but know, the UK. There are some
1: very deep-seated problems. Like, you know, your students, are they having a good time in the job market this year? I mean, I've heard all No,
2: that. no, no. No, I agree. I agree. But that has very little to do with self-confidence, right? It's like, okay, we <laughs> have very serious uh, internal problems. I don't think anybody would deny that but they are looking at the future. They believe the future will improve. It's like air pollution 10 or 15 years ago in Beijing, right? It was very bad. And nowadays, for whatever reasons, it's getting better and better. And in Southern China, it's even much better. So I think it's the long-term projection that makes them self-confident. They believe okay. 10 years from now, they're going to get better. So even today, yeah, this year we have 10 million graduates <laughs> who who needed to find jobs? Very challenging.
0: Yes. Yes, I mean, and probably only half of them uh, have a have a job offer on place because of a uh, you know situation. No, right. In, in you know, Asia. no.
2: I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Be, I'm not saying this because I think it's uh, correct reality or not. I'm just offering why you know this side, the Chinese side, is self confident.
0: Yeah.
1: Sure. Despite no. all these Brilliant. challenges, so, um, and of course, yeah. Yeah right, no right.
0: I I do want to understand a little bit more I I know this has been such a great conversation but I uh I think uh people who look at Japan uh feel that you know before the uh the bubble burst Japan was extremely confident of 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 itself in economic growth and after the bubble burst the sentiment somehow you know changed a little bit you know Japanese Japanese people and 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 the Companies started, you know, not taking on the debt, not not willing to take risk a little bit more. I mean, at least that's a narrative. But do you do you feel that that there, there is certain risk of that happening in China?
2: Well, I don't know the economy where Victor knows better, but I would say China would lose its confidence, or its uh, public population would lose the confidence a lot if we have the similar like a 10-year recession like Japan, I'm sure, right? The numbers don't lie. If you have like a 10-year kind of a slow growth or almost a 1% growth, zero growth, then everybody would lose confidence, right? Regardless mm-hmm. if it's Japan, China, or U.S. Unless that happens, I think people will continue to be more, I, I think, you know, uh, confident as long yeah, as that came.
1: depends on the housing market to some extent so uh tell us uh Chen, what's going to happen to the housing market i mean it's done terribly right so march april even the may numbers just look terrible uh and if there's no pretty big recovery by june a lot of firms are gonna flip over i mean they, they you know as you know the gearing is very high uh they they're not buying land already so local governments also get in trouble local revenue is down you know uh, private private firms right. yeah, yeah. Ding
0: Ding, well Evergrande is you know originally headquartered uh, a very big part in Guangzhou and dindin you live in <laughs> Guangzhou yes. so tell us yeah. well, what's your view on the housing market you know what is the political well, and the business view
2: <laughs> well the housing market I, I don't uh, no, of course, but I, I think it's been uh, stabilizing. You know, the prices are not moving upward or downward very much in, anyway. So it's been quite stable. I think that's the best the situation right now. Right? If it drops too quickly, then the public will suffer. If it you know continues to rise uh, rapidly, then the debt level would be very very high for for households, etc. So, like I said, you know, there's this picture between private firms and the uh, state-owned firms, right? The private one, right, you know, Evergrande, they may be, they are gone, maybe, maybe not. But that doesn't really change the the very big picture. I mean, uh, you know, the state-owned ones are actually taking over uh, the shares of uh, the private ones. But, so but, this may, might be another example of uh, mingtui but that's a different story.
0: Yeah, but what I'm saying is that do you see this uh, a more specific housing industry related? Because in the past, uh, if, for example, during uh, the financial crisis, uh, the in know two thousand eight two thousand nine, there was also a you know a few periods where the state owned companies got a little bit upper hand because they have better access to capital. You know they can get bank loans easier but usually it is more short-term. You know, as soon as the economy turns, the private firms get into a better way uh, of growing themselves so again. Do you, do you see the housing situation more uh, a short-term solution, the short-term situation that state-owned companies doing well, but, but in the overall longer term? Because I believe you know, China's growth, if China is going to be able to grow you know, two or 3% extra on top of the U.S. growth, it's gonna rely on on the private firms, not the state-owned firms, right? I
2: agree, I agree. But I, I agree with you on that. But I think uh, my my guess, my speculation is the companies adopting a new strategy by moving away from the uh housing market, by reliance on the housing market. That mm-hmm. seems to be the dead end. If you look at Japan other, uh, that's why they're promoting so much or uh, trying to pour uh, pour so much capital to the new energy market or the you know uh, cloud computing or whatever the, yes. the hard technologies so that's new, where yeah
0: the new right. infrastructure the you new know if, green. If,
2: if if anybody pays attention there are actually five or six provinces the richest person from those uh, six provinces including uh Fujian, and Jiangxi are from the new energy car sectors. So yes. things are changing. The housing uh, sector the the big uh, richest uh, you know people they're falling from the uh, the fortune list very yes. very quickly yes it's Actually, the hard technology people yeah
0: yeah I and I agree Victor I think uh, housing is uh, even though right now the government is still using housing to to kind of stabilize right but I don't think uh, it's getting back to the high-growing, high-profitability, and extreme uh, price appreciation days anymore. My my own brother is a uh, is in real estate, uh, and they've been uh, having they've been trying to prepare for this. So I think uh, I think it, you know the housing price is probably going to stay, you know, um, uh, kind of stabilized. It it will for for lower level cities will go down. Um, but the sales will not be, you know, phenomenal as before because now it's not necessarily a good uh, investment uh, uh, area anymore. And for, for a lot of Chinese, they're going to have to think hard, you know, where to park that money. So I think right now, just recently there's, you know, many talks that many Chinese are, you know, holding significant amount of cash, uh, partly because COVID, you know, you have no place to spend the cash, uh, but also partly because, they are hesitant of uh, putting money in the housing market, which has been traditionally uh, a typical Chinese uh, way of investing their extra sur- surplus. I don't, I don't think that's going to be uh, the case in the next ten years. Um, yeah,
1: so nothing is better. I mean, the stock market, you know, it's like as you know, the industrial sector, the profit margins are super thin, and you know, housing at least there has been pretty steady appreciation. Uh, the industry as a whole is pretty healthy cash flows up until recently, you know, obviously some of them lever levered up too much, like Evergrande, they flipped over. But the industrial sector is no better. I mean, you know, these uh, even some of the private well tech is different, but tech cannot be relied upon to generate growth because they're very rational. The moment business slows down, they fire all these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the party cannot accept that okay as you know <laughs> when well, thing about all, right stability above all you can't have like tencent firing like a thousand engineers or whatever the rumors are that is not acceptable
0: Well, they are doing that uh so uh even though i think uh the the layoff, uh, I once tweeted that, you know, the search words for layoff is all time high. Um, so I, and you know, some of my own friends, they've laid off people just to uh, survive, uh, survive this year. So we have so much to talk about. And uh, I hope we can talk again. I know. Uh, um, so probably one last question. Uh, when people paying attention to China, what should they pay attention to? Like, you know, if or. Uh, books recommend or like what what kind of research resources uh, do you recommend people to to go and seek it out, uh, Victor?
1: Oh, so uh, you, in terms of media resources, um, no, I, I think Caixin, uh magazine, you know, I continue to be a huge fan. They cover a range of different issues, very deep dives on, uh, you know, scandals when they happen. Uh, but also industries, you know, particular industries, uh, cities sometimes. So I still find the reporting to be very top notch, even though, of course, it's not as good as before. There's more kind of censorship, self-censorship, let's say, uh, but still very top notch. Um, yeah. So the, and then, you know, of course, economic numbers and, and that kind of stuff.
0: Ding Ding, what, what do you recommend people when they pay attention to China, where to seek out for information? uh
2: there's too much information of course <laughs> available for us to choose from uh, the difficulty is uh we needed to be open-minded about uh you know this information because we tend to live in our own information bubble right we tend mm-hmm. to choose information we already uh, sort of agree with so i think we should uh, actually reach out to information we usually don't agree with, uh, just to understand why there is a certain logic behind uh, something we don't agree
1: with. Right? I think that, that's uh, valuable. There are still some uh, good sources from, uh, from China, I think, from the South China
2: Morning Post. It's still very, very uh, valuable. And um, and if, you, if people can read Chinese, of course, I would recommend that. Uh, uh, the news. I'm sure Victor follows very, very uh, closely. Uh, the top journal for the Chinese government officials and the real top officials. Their speeches, um, if you read uh, correctly, you know there are hints in their speeches about the future uh, policy directions. But that's uh, uh you know, uh, how you know uh, China Chinese experts like uh, Victor can teach uh, the audience to, to learn.
0: Yeah, for me, um, I, because I pay more attention to companies and their earnings, I always felt that in the end, it's really how the companies can make money, right? Sometimes the macro condition can be terrible, but there's still companies that are able to make money, you know, the entrepreneurship entrepreneurship so I pay a lot of attention to company news uh how how the you know how how are they making money uh what what kind of you know uh, business um, practices that that's helping I think and then
2: particularly are, particularly company leadership style if they are too high profile you know in China that's not a very positive sign.
0: yes yes actually you know you can see that you know the the less the the CEOs attract attention, generally the better they are able to make money. Uh, So that seems to be a pretty good rule. Although one day, you know, Victor, probably we should do some kind of a a, a quantitative, quantifying of this so-called, you know, attention, Spotlight uh, negative uh, uh, negative effect on company earnings. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we have Victor Shi and Ding Ding Chen and myself Li Chen Ren. Uh, we are also on Twitter. Uh, you can find us and follow us. Uh, and and we have other episodes of podcast that that's about China and the rest of Asia. So hopefully we can uh, talk again. This has been very interesting and a very long conversation. Thank you, Victor and Ding Ding.